The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. This is the third sermon in our series on the book of Acts. And what we've seen is that the main point of the book of Acts is that Acts is all about what King Jesus continued to do and teach by His Spirit through the apostles. That's the book of Acts. All that Jesus continued to do and teach by His Spirit through His apostles. And here is why that is so relevant today. I'm afraid that in our day, people are just flat out confused about what Christianity is. I wonder if you could say, if you had to describe Christianity to someone else, if they had questions, what would you say? Where would you start? I'm asking you at home as well. What would you say? So many people are confused because they associate Christianity mainly with ideas or positions. So they'll say Christianity is about a a position about homosexuality, that it's a sin. Or Christianity is a position about abortion, that's a sin. Or Christianity is a, a political position or a moral position or an idea or a philosophy or a whatever, and it is not. It is a person. It is fundamentally about the Lord Jesus Christ, that He died, that He was buried, that He rose again, that He ascended on high, that He's reigning until everything is under His feet as His footstool. He's returning again, and the only way that we can be saved is in the name of Jesus, repenting of our sins, believing in His finished work. We will be saved. That is Christianity, and it cannot be confused with any kind of political view or even moral position as if that is what Christianity is. It's all about Him. And the question in front of us this morning in Acts chapter 1, verse 3 Is that all a hoax? Is that all a fable? A fairy tale? Or is it actual, irrefutable history? Fact. Verse 3 is here to put all of those questions to rest. The main point of verse 3, as you can see when I read it in a minute, is simple Jesus is alive. And he proved it to his disciples in many ways. Jesus is alive. And he proved it to his disciples in many ways. You can read it right there in verse 3, Acts chapter 1. He presented himself alive. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That is what Christianity comes down to. If He's not risen, then our faith is vain. We're still in our sins. Nothing else matters. But if this verse is true, 
that he's alive, and that he proved it in many ways, and everything changes. Everything suddenly changes. So what I want to do is I want to walk through this text. You're going to see first, in the first part of the verse, here's what he did in these 40 days, and then you'll see how he did it. So what he did and how he did it. Let's pray. Father, I ask, I ask that the eyes of our hearts would be opened, that with all that we face and with all that is in our face, that we may have Easter in November, that the eyes of our hearts might see Jesus reigning, alive, returning. O God, I pray that you would allow the eyes of our hearts to be focused now, open and fixed upon our blessed hope. May there be resurrection hope, resurrection joy, resurrection power. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll begin with what Jesus did, first part of verse 3. Let's read it. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. What you will find in the book of Acts is that this is the acts of Jesus himself. Even here, notice how Jesus takes the initiative. It's not as if during these 40 days... The disciples are on some grand hide-and-seek mission. They're trying to find Jesus wherever he's hidden, that he's here, and then he disappears, and they're trying to find him. He presents himself to them. He is the one who always takes the initiative. He appears to them. He presents himself alive. He wants them to see and know without a shadow of a doubt that he's alive, and he proves it to them. They had seen him suffer. They had no doubts about his death. That was irrefutable. They were ready to throw in the towel and call it quits and say it's over. They had no doubts about that. They needed certainty that he was alive, and that's why this word that Luke uses for proofs is so important. It means a compelling sign, an irrefutable fact. We could call it tangible evidence. When we say there's a smoking gun that we're looking for, this would be the irrefutable evidence of certain fact. One commentator says that this word for proofs which is the only place we see it in the entire New Testament, was very common only in one kind of literature, and that's Greek historiography, Greek history writing. If somebody wanted to have, uh, make a historical claim, you would say, this is historically fact. You would use this word. You can't imagine a stronger word that Luke could find for saying the resurrection is absolutely true. 
irrefutable fact. He's trying to say, this is absolute history. This really, really happened. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't Jesus was there in the spirit. It's that he was irrefutably, physically present, risen from the dead. And you notice here that Jesus presents himself to them in many ways. He presents himself to them by many proofs. We're going to see some of them. The, the proofs were an essential part of the disciples' preparation for ministry. And it was a core fact of their message. Consider, for example, the apostle John. Right away, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, that is the apostles, those who saw this, heard this, touched him. You may have fellowship with us Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So this was proof with the eyes, with the ears, with the hands. Jesus proved that He is alive. Now, here's why this is so important. When you're studying history, you might say, well, we weren't there. We didn't get to be like Thomas and put our fingers in the, the, the nail holes. We didn't get to see his wounds. We didn't get to feel the scars. We didn't get to be part of that. How can we be sure? Well, here's what historians do. Historians always correlate cause and effect. They study effect. And as they study a set of effects, they have to try to find a probable cause that will correlate with the effects. What cause can explain the effects? What do you think the book of Acts is saying? It was irrefutable that these disciples saw him die. They heard the hammering of the nails. Some of them saw the spear in his side. They knew he was dead. And in fact, they knew it so well that they were locked inside for fear that they were next. And yet, this group of disciples cowering in fear somehow go out boldly proclaiming that he is risen and are willing to go to the ends of the earth and all of them give up their lives. What possible cause could explain that transformation? Answer, Jesus really rose. Jesus really appeared to them. They're not going to go. The rest of Acts is not going to happen 
If this is a fable, if this is a fairy tale, if this is a philosophy, if this is an idea, the only way it makes sense at all is that Jesus actually rose. And that's what they preached. Everywhere they went, every sermon, you will hear it. Jesus died, Jesus rose. Now, question, how? How did he present himself? What are the many proofs? Well, we find out in the second half of the verse. Read it. First part, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering suffering by many proofs. How? Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So how does he present himself alive? You can see it. He appears to them, that is, they see him with their eyes, hear him with their ears, touch him with their hands, and he explains to them the significance of it. He explains to them the kingdom of God. So the Gospel of Luke ends with three appearances of Jesus. He appears to Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus. Then he appears to Peter. And then, while they're still talking about this, he appears to the eleven disciples. And here's what he says. Luke 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, that is, Jesus is alive, and he appeared to these two disciples, and he appeared to Peter. As they're talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Just notice this. Sometimes people assume, oh, the disciples, they were just gullible, backwards fishermen. They were just hardwired to believe anything. No, they weren't. How many times did Jesus have to show up before they actually would believe that he wasn't just a spirit? That's what they're ready to believe. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. There's a proof. He shows them his hands and feet. They already heard him. Now he's showing them, look. And while they still disbelieved, this time it's a little different, they disbelieved for joy and were marveling. It was so stupendous, their minds were so blown that now they're struggling to believe just out of sheer joy. While that's happening, they're marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Do you not get the picture here of a Savior 
who's more than ready to pull out all the stops so that his disciples will believe. What a merciful Savior. What, hands and feet aren't enough? Give me some fish. I'll do anything to show you who I am and what I have done. Pull out all the stops. Do anything that you need to see. These proofs are not just for the eyes, but for the hands to see he's not a ghost. This became a defining moment for the disciples. In fact, it shows up when Peter is preaching to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. In all the preaching, you're going to hear that Jesus died, that he rose, and look what Peter adds. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, Acts 10 verse 40, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Jesus isn't just going rogue, making appearances. The Father is still in charge of this plan. Made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He ate fish with us. That's how we know that he's alive. We saw him, heard him, touched him. We watched him eat fish. We know that this is no hoax. Now, that's just the end of Luke's gospel. Acts here tells us in Acts chapter 1 that he did this for 40 days, that he made many appearances, not just three if you look in, in verse one, or sorry, verse three again, appearing to them during 40 days, meaning these many proofs had many appearances. So it wasn't just one time that they could go and then somehow overthink, overanalyze. Did it really happen? He came again and again and again and again and again so that they would not doubt it at all. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, he passed on to them what he received as of first importance. What is firstly important about Christianity? Jesus died. He was buried. He rose on the third day, and he appeared. How we forget that. Yes, he died. Yes, he was buried. Yes, he rose. But in between resurrection and ascension, he appeared. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's saying this is absolute historical fact. Some of them are still alive, meaning you can go talk to them. You can see for yourself, hear for yourself that he appeared. This would be the only mass hallucination that had 500 people, more than 500 people, for more than 40 days. It's impossible that this is a hoax or a hallucination. 
then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Why? Why did he appear so many times in so many ways? Two reasons. First, he appeared so many times in so many ways so that it would be so crystal clear that it's irrefutably true. Every time he appears, it's like another nail in the coffin of doubt to say, no, he is alive. He is alive. It is true. How many times does he need to prove it? It is irrefutably true. But second, I think there's a mercy at work here. Not just to make it so irrefutably clear, but to be merciful to his disciples. Think about this. When they were with him, they were with him all the time. His physical presence was there all the time, every day. Can you imagine how sudden and shocking it would be to have him there all the time and then to have him there none of the time, ever, again, until his second coming? Instead of being so sudden, Jesus makes sure that it's gradual. That rather than going from everything to nothing, Jesus is beginning to extend out the time between his appearances, appearing, then disappearing, then appearing, and then disappearing, then appearing. He's getting them ready for the time when they won't see him anymore physically. This is mercy. This is mercy. This is Jesus bending, stooping down to their weakness. I'm getting you ready for the time that you won't see me again until I come again. It's not just all or nothing. It's gradual. Now, he not only appeared to them, he spoke to them. Notice that? Speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Kingdom of God is a reference to the, the rule and reign of God. Sometimes we think of kingdom being a, a place, a, domin, a domain, like here is where God rules. But the kingdom of God is not so much a, a place as it is a, a power, a rule and reign that can be established anywhere. So here Jesus is talking to them about this rule and reign of God, especially with relation to the resurrection. Now, this is really important for Luke because the, the kingdom of God is what shows up in their preaching in very strategic points along the way in Acts. But it's especially clear that it's important because it begins and ends the book of Acts. The book begins with Jesus presenting himself alive in many ways, teaching about the kingdom of God. It ends in Acts 28 with Paul teaching on the kingdom of God. Acts 28, 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, 
proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Acts begins with the Lord Jesus Christ preaching about the kingdom of God. Acts ends with Paul in prison, but the word is inbound. He's teaching about the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's no proper end to the book because we're still teaching about the kingdom of God, proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I do not want the kingdom of God to be something that is abstract and ethereal to you. What is it? I looked for a place in Luke's gospel that made the argument, this proves the kingdom has come. And it actually was a surprising text. Luke chapter 11, verse 20. What is the proof that the kingdom of God has come? Luke 11, verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So there's the question, right? What in the world does casting out demons have to do with the coming of the kingdom? If I do this by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come. It's proof. What does he mean? I think the reason we struggle to understand the basic point of the kingdom is because we come to define what is normal as what is natural. Here's what I mean. After a while, if you've been in pandemic mode since March, masks become weirdly normal. But it doesn't mean that they're natural. It doesn't mean that it's it's something that we should get used to long term. And when Jesus is doing these miracles, showing that the kingdom has come as he's casting out demons. What is he doing? Most people who start with this world say, I can't believe in Christianity because you claim that there's miracles. And miracles are interruptions of the natural order. No, they're not. They're not interruptions of the natural order. They're the restoration of the natural order. We become so used to sin and sickness and demons and death and pandemics and everything else that we start to think that it's normal and therefore natural. But it's not the way that it always was. It's not the way that God made this world, this good world when he created it. When sin and the fall and sickness and demons and death come into the world, that's the unnatural And when Jesus comes after the fall and sin and Satan and death invade this world, the kingdom of God invades and begins to take what is unnatural and bring the restoration of the original. So when Jesus is casting out demons, what is he doing? He's not just healing people. 
He's casting out of creation the powers of darkness and destruction. When he's healing people, he's not just healing people, he's casting out the things, the powers of debilitation and destruction. He's not just healing people, he's healing creation. And it becomes, wherever Jesus shows up in the Gospel of Luke and casts out demons or heals, he's saying, this is the kingdom, the kingdom coming and removing the unnatural and restoring the original order. That's what the kingdom does. And he's saying here, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that the greatest defining moment in the kingdom of God is when Jesus takes on the last enemy himself and defeats death and the grave so that now there's an open door to the world to come and Jesus has come from that world, entered into this fallen world, defeated the last enemy and opened the door to the world to come saying everything's new now. The kingdom is now here in power because the king has come and he has defeated death. Jesus' resurrection is proof that he has defeated death, that dreadful enemy that invaded his good world. It is a prophecy of something better than even the beginning because Jesus' resurrection body wasn't just a natural body. It was that and more. A glorified body. A body that can appear and then disappear. A body that can apparently go through walls when there's locked doors. It is the prophecy of a glorified world. A new heavens and new earth. In other words, hear me. When you look at everything that you're facing today, when you look at everything that's hard, everything that within you screams, that's not right. I don't want that. I don't like that. This is hard. It hurts. When you experience all of that, what you're able to say is that there's nothing that a good resurrection can't fix. Whatever I'm feeling, whatever I'm seeing, these are the marks, the evidences of a fallen world. But Jesus has overcome that. So let me just get real personal and practical for a moment. I'm going to ask you to do something. If you are an unbeliever, I'm going to ask you to understand something that I think is unbelievably tragic. What we know about this world is that this world has, because it's still my father's world, it has aspects of grace that are here. God's presence is still here. God made everything. There's still beauty. There's still things that are good. But all around us is the evidence of the fall. I'm looking at people wearing masks. It's obvious that this is a fallen world. 
And sadly, if you are a believer, if you are not a believer, if you have not received the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't believe, as the Bible says, if, if you believe, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If that's not you, this life with its remnants of good and beauty is as close to heaven as you'll ever come. And if you're a believer, with this fall, with this pandemic, with this sickness, with abuse, with cancer, with everything, it's as close to hell as you'll ever get. If you're not a believer, why would you stop there? If you look at all that's good and all that's beautiful and all that you love, why stop there? Jesus rose to defeat everything that's hard and everything that's ugly and everything that within you screams that you hate it. He died and rose again to defeat it so that it would only be heaven, so it would only be resurrection joy. Don't stop at these little glimpses of heaven when you can have all of it. And believers, don't throw in the towel. When you get so frustrated and confused and angry about all that's hard here, it's not time to quit. It's not time to give up. It's not time to say, I can't do it anymore. Heaven is coming. This is so short. It's a vapor. We get so psyched out because we look at the immediate and we see the importance of things in this world and we get all wrapped up in it. How many arguments right now are we having about wearing a mask in church? Maybe important, but can we agree? Not ultimate. Christians are the kind of people who can be uncertain about the immediate and absolutely certain about the ultimate. We know what's coming. We know what's real and eternal. And therefore, we can rejoice with resurrection hope. Do you know what that looks like? Resurrection hope says, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what's hard, if I'm a believer, I'm not alone. Jesus is with me. And therefore, I'm not sitting around waiting for a reason to rejoice. I'm not waiting to see what's going to happen. It's so uncertain right now, isn't it? You don't know if there's going to be a vaccine. You don't know if you're going to have to quarantine. You don't know if there's going to be a lockdown. You don't know if you're going to get COVID. You don't know if you're still going to have a job. You don't know, you don't know, you don't know. So what? We're uncertain about the immediate, but absolutely certain about the ultimate, and we're not waiting for a reason to rejoice. I'm not waiting to rejoice, depending on whether or not the weather warms up, the stock market goes up, or our circumstances are looking up, Jesus was raised up, and therefore that 
is a reason to rejoice. We look at everything that's happening and we say if he was raised up, then nothing can hold me down. The grave can't hold down my body. And it also means this. You can not only, with resurrection hope, have resurrection rejoicing, you can have resurrection perseverance. Here's what I mean. There are so many people right now that are struggling with depression, struggling with doubts, struggling with loneliness, struggling to even believe that anything matters anymore. Just struggling with an appalling sense of darkness and doubt. And what we believe about the resurrection is simple. Paul said, if Jesus isn't raised, then all of our doubts and our depression is true. But if Jesus is risen, then we are not still in our sins. This old world is not all that there is. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Do you see the difference? If Jesus isn't risen, then you're right. Nothing that you do matters. But if he is risen, then yes, this world is fading fast and only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, how I want you. When you think of the many appearances of Jesus, I want you to rejoice with each one. Imagine what each one said as the disciples saw him. The resurrection is not just Jesus saying, here's proof of it. The resurrection itself is proof. It's proof that he's God. It's proof that he defeated the grave. It's proof that there's a new world coming. So with every resurrection appearance, you see, it's true. He defeated the grave. With the next appearance, it's true. The debt has been paid. With the next appearance, it's true. My sins have been forgiven. We're not waiting for a reason to rejoice, but with all of the appearances, what we have is the roaring lion saying, the grave has no claim on me. I'm not going to let this fallen world get me down because he's been raised up. And if he walked out of that grave, I'll be walking too. Let's pray. Father, I ask. I ask for a resurrection hope right now. A resurrection hope that says, I'm never alone. A resurrection hope that says, I'm not waiting for a reason to rejoice. A resurrection hope that says, I don't believe the lie that nothing matters. No, we believe that you are risen, that you are even now taking the unnatural 
and restoring order, one soul being saved at a time. And we are longing for your coming and the revealing of another world where you're going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.